Aviation Podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 113, NTSB's Most Wanted List, and more coming up in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Zyko, Sean Moody, Eric Crump, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Welcome to a special edition of the Stuck Mike Avcast. I'm Carl Valeri, your host this evening, and we have quite a few people on with us tonight to talk about a really exciting podcast and exciting topic that uh, is near and dear to my heart. But first, let me introduce uh, some of our our normal co-hosts. Number one is Rick Felty. Rick, welcome. Hello, hello. Sorry I could not be here last show, but I'm glad to be back. And we're happy to have you. And uh, also with us is uh, Victoria. No need to say her last name. Like I said, just like Reba. Victoria, welcome. (laughs) I have a space heater on my feet. I'm quite cozy tonight. Oh, that's great. And you're waiting for a snowstorm where you are because I think you're going to get the worst tonight. Oh, yes. Not looking forward to it at all. We're recording this on an evening of a very big snowstorm about to hit the the mid-Atlantic states in the northeast. So that's going to be quite interesting. Also joining us tonight is uh, flight instructor Tom Frick from sunny Florida. Tom, welcome. Hi, from the frozen tundra of Florida. And uh, <laughs> it was actually down in the 40s today. I, oh. don't, I don't like this at all. Not so you, at all. Wow. So you weren't lying. It wasn't. It is cold down there. And uh, you guys put on your space heaters when that happens. Um, also joining us this evening is from the true uh, cold and Arctic tundra, Larry Overstreet. Larry, welcome. Hello from Wisconsin, where over the last couple of days we've had it as low as 26 below wind chill. Whoa, that is way too cold. Um, and in addition, we have somebody that uh, Sean Moody, who hasn't been on for a couple episodes because he is one of the hardest workers in uh, in the field of news. Uh, Sean, welcome. Thanks, Carl. Yeah, it's uh, sorry I have been absent so much. I'm finally uh, back again. So I appreciate that. And Victoria, I think uh, your blizzard that's on the way, we just finished with. So enjoy that. Oh, well, thank you for your kind gift. <laughs> well, we're actually about to start snowing here. I am in, in sunny New Jersey, which just turned uh, dark and dismal this evening. And we're going to get a little bit of snow tonight. Uh, not associated with that same system that you're talking about. Uh, this is a precursor to the whole big storm that's coming down on us. Let's do the pre-flight. Also joining us this evening, by the way, we have a really special guest, uh, Paul Greco. Paul has actually uh, been on Aviation Careers podcast. But he's, he is a regional airline pilot, and there's a couple topics we're going to talk about with Paul. He's going to bring us a, a really interesting perspective on regional turboprop flying. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Paul. Hey, thanks. It is good to have you on, and you are in uh, a place that uh, a lot of people probably don't know much about, and it's uh, Charleston, West Virginia. Where is Charleston, West Virginia? Um, It's in West Virginia. Yeah, he's looking on a a map right now. (laughs) Hang on one second while I pull up Google Maps. (laughs) Google Maps. (laughs) It's about an hour away from Dulles by airplane. 
And you had a very interesting flight this evening, uh, getting in I there. Did. Yeah, it was uh, quite the approach. Uh, from yeah, what we, we had uh, icing conditions from uh, the top of the descent all the way through the landing. Uh, we broke out at uh, I think it was like 800 feet. <clears throat> Excuse me, and. Um, it was like prime icing conditions from from the moment we got into the clouds all the way to the ground, and uh, it definitely got our attention. The airplane began to uh, buffet, and uh, we had to cycle through the condition levers to shed the ice off the propellers and slowed down from 220 to 160 within a matter of about four seconds. Ooh. It was it was sign oh it was significant yeah wow carried a bit. Carried twice the amount of power I normally carry in the approach, and I landed with, I landed with the power that I normally fly the approach with. So it was, it was significant. <clears throat> yeah, and the condition levers are kind of like the prop levers on a, a piston aircraft, right? Yeah, they're they're yeah. You could pretty much consider that like uh, uh, like the con when you c control the prop in right. a uh, in a constant speed airplane. It it does a little more than that, but essentially that's what that's what yeah, it we, is. We won't go into that, but that's actually a topic for another yeah. podcast, and we'll definitely get into that on another show. So it's uh, it, that's interesting because uh, even on a, you know a jet aircraft that I fly is uh, we need to try to get the get all that that ice off of the off of the blades sometimes it'll start vibrating it's another reason we look at the vibrations right. uh, on the blades of a jet and uh, try to sling those off you know changing power settings etc um, right. it, it's it's quite interesting to see some of the buildup of the ice so we're we're dealing with that and uh, we're dealing with some other very interesting uh, things that actually will tie into uh, what we're talking about tonight as far as uh, the big most wanted list we're about to talk about well, welcome again, Paul. Uh, it's great to Thanks. have you here. Uh, you really are someone that's out there doing real flying. I mean, how many approaches do you think you've done the past few days? It's got to be at least five. Oh, days? Yeah. Real approaches? Yeah. Yeah, probably, uh, yeah, probably about five or six. Real approaches, he says, because not all of them go down to minimums, right? Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's quite a few. I mean, I think I've done five or six in the past maybe couple of weeks, you know, or month. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so you're, you're doing quite a few legs per day, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Now entering cruise flight. Well, let's get started. Uh, actually, don't have any announcements. We have a really cool topic, which is going to take up a lot of time. And it's something that I think is really interesting, and it's near and dear to my heart because uh, of course, I'm a FAA safety counselor volunteer with the FAST team, and we talk all about these topics right here, the NTSB Most Wanted List. If you haven't seen it yet, the 2016 Most Wanted List from the National Transportation Safety Board is out. We'll have a link to that if you go to ntsb.gov. It's uh, it's pretty much on the first page there if you flip through the uh, the the actual news, but it's under the safety and advocacy, the most wanted list, and we'll have a link to that, so don't worry about that. But there's a couple things we're going to go over. Some of these uh, have more to do with, uh, you know, the 10 most wanted is going to be uh, from all different forms of transportation, or I should say the most wanted list, and uh, a lot of them apply to general aviation. So we're going we're gonna to filter out those things that apply to general aviation. Uh, and the things that we're going to talk about this evening have to do with uh, fatigue, and uh, also, the next thing we'll talk a little bit about is distractions, preventing loss of control, and uh, fit for duty is another one that we, we really want to discuss this evening, is uh, fit for duty. 
Uh, and are you fit for duty? And are you fit to fly? And we're going to look at that from a general aviation perspective. The first one I want to go over, though, the first one we're going to start with here, and this is something that, that I'd, I'd really like to get the input from Paul and also from the flight instructors that are out there full-time instructing and the other pilots that fly a lot, general aviation, is reducing fatigue-related accidents. And that's, uh, that's a big issue. That's at the top of their list there. And, uh, you know, it, it's obvious when we're flying an airplane, driving a car, driving a train, whoever you are, driving a boat, you, you want to make sure that you're alert at all times. But uh, it's really, really a challenge at times to be alert all day if you have particularly a long day or a long commute to work, etc. You know, it's interesting. When I had a day job, you know, a normal job, I should say, where I was at a desk and say I was fatigued and I fell asleep, there wasn't uh, an imminent disaster. Uh, you know, if I was to fall asleep on my desk, maybe I dropped my pencil. But, you know, in, in the transportation world, something really bad can happen, and we don't want that to happen. So the NTSB has looked at this and said, you know, there's, there is something out there that we need to keep looking at fatigue uh, as a big risk factor in how to mitigate fatigue. And as a matter of fact, I did um, a safety seminar, and I do a safety seminar, on how it's called the fatigue pilot, how to recognize and manage fatigue, and I'll have a link to that. There's actually a YouTube video I did about that presentation. And there's some really good, good tools and takeaways. But first, let's t- look at uh, you know one of the things that has changed over the years with air transportation, and that is this new rule, the FAR one seventeen. FAR one seventeen. And Paul, you have a unique perspective on uh, these new rules that have come out for fatigue, and also uh, you have a unique perspective because you're in there all day flying the t- and that type of flying that was defined in FAR one seventeen, the rules that were made to prevent people from being fatigued. And because of an accident, they made up these rules. Paul, what, what is unique about flying for uh, a, a regional airline as far as fatigue? And what do you do to mitigate that? Sure. So when you talk about the, the new rest rules that were specific to regional flying, um, obviously it applies to all Part 121 flying. But the, the rest rules, I think, apply more specifically to the regionals because we fly so many legs a day. And so there's a table. It's called Table B in the uh, FAR 117 regulations. And and essentially, uh, the way this table works is you based on the number of legs you fly in a day and the time that you report for work, it limits your duty day to a certain period of hours. So as an example, let's say I were to fly five legs and I reported for work at 5.30 in the morning, I can only fly for 11 point, I can only work on duty for 11.5 hours. Um, now, that's not flight hours. That's just my duty day. Um, at that point, at a 5 o'clock report, I can fly a maximum of nine total flight hours out of the 11.5-hour duty day. And that, that uh, duty day time period changes. For example, if I were to fly only one leg at that same report time, I could fly for 12 hours. And so... Um, <clears throat> what they're trying to do is they're trying to mitigate fatigue by limiting the number of hours that you can be used in a day. Now, where that becomes, I don't want to, I don't want to say a problem, but where where it affects us is um, when when you work a bunch of days in a row. So right now I'm on a really busy schedule because I attended um, some some special training that took eight days. So in order, we're so short staffed that 
I, I, I couldn't get the days off. So what they had to do is they, they gave me the days off in the beginning of the month, but then they added trips. They backfilled my schedule and my, my days off with, with more flying. So I've essentially been flying, let's, let's just say five days in a row with a day off and another three, day, three or four days in a row with a day off. So what, what, what's about to happen to me likely tomorrow, but if not tomorrow, for sure the next day, is that I'm going to time out because there's, there are flight limitations as well. So, for example, you can only fly 100 hours and 672 uh, rolling hours, or you can only have 60 flight duty period hours and 168 hours, which is seven days. So that's the one I'm coming up on. Which So 60 hours in, in a rolling seven days is I'm, – I'm, I've only – I'm about, I think, four hours shy of exceeding that, so I'm sure I'll exceed that tomorrow. And what that means is um, if I exceed that before I finish my day flying, I'm going to time out, and I'm not going to be able to fly that, those trips. So that, they're trying to mitigate fatigue um, and trying to get ahead of the game uh, by using this new FAR 117 rule. Now, this new FAR-117 is really affecting you right now because uh, there's a couple things. We have to make sure you're fit for duty and you get right. enough rest. Correct. And you're talking to us right now, and I know you, have to, you may have to you know, knock off early because you need to right. get rest because you're flying early tomorrow morning, aren't you? I think That's it's correct. like, yeah. yeah so you, yeah, but that, we, that's an important part of the rule, right? Getting the proper amount of rest, too. Yeah, you need to have 10 hours of rest. Um, so that's and that's definitely an important part of the role and so um and you have to be fit for duty and a lot of the onus is on you to um to to sort of say that you're fit for duty so when i sign the release i'm i'm attesting that i am fit for duty to fly the airplane and so it's it's if it's, if i'm not if i'm if i'm accepting the flight and i am fatigued it's on me the company gives me the company gives us outs one of the, you know one of the outs is um having the ability to call in fatigued and and you calling in fatigued um so it's like throwing a flag and saying, you know what, I can't do this. I'm tired. It's unsafe. I can't do it. And uh, and so there's no punishment on you. It cannot be held against you. It's just okay. You're fatigued. You know, you call scheduling. You say you're fatigued. They say okay. Um, stand by for your new report time, and they give you a new report time for the following day. Um, they, and so you get you don't lose pay for the trip. So. Um, that what they wanted to eliminate there was um, people not using, not calling in fatigued for fear of not being paid. So you can call in fatigued, you can still get paid for the trip, and um, you don't you, you don't get in trouble for it. You do have to fill out some paperwork and you have to fill out a report, but it's a really great system um, that's put in place to to use when when you are fatigued, and and it's just it's a part of being human. We're human beings up there, and and things happen and you get tired and and you know you need to you need to be your you need to be an advocate because you're you're protecting people you know when you fly 50 people around that's a, there's there's a lot of lives on the line and so i think that it's a you have a responsibility if you're not fit to fly to say you know what i'm not fit to fly i'm too i'm fatigued for whatever reason um you know and uh and and utilize that tool that's given to you well, the one thing with that, though, is that I think 
We, as pilots, uh, general aviation, airline pilots, et cetera, we don't want to do that because we're so, we are so mission-driven that we don't want to call in fatigue. We don't want to tell our friends that, hey, listen, I can't take you to Key West in the morning to go hang out for Fantasy Fest because – I just didn't get enough sleep last night. I'm sorry. I had a. I was up doing a surgery. Right. I was doing. You know, I didn't sleep in Holiday Inn last night, so I didn't get any rest, and <laughs> I'm not. I'm not ready to go. And and that's right. that's a tough decision to make. Have you ever called in fatigue? By the way, I actually have once, yeah, and okay. it was one. And it was a tough call because I was pretty new. I was on reserve, um, and I had. I was working uh, six days in a row, and I called in on day six fatigued and um very very briefly the circumstance was i for the previous five i i was put on a five-day trip that had morning reports for the first five days so i had my body was used to getting up at four four thirty in the morning for a five o'clock van for a five thirty show and so that's what i was used to and so on day six i was uh off that trip the trip had ended but on i had one more day of reserve left and they the night before, they told me, you're going to report to the airport for a 7 a.m. flight. It was a 6, 6.30 report for a 7 a.m. flight. You're going to fly a turn, meaning I'm going to fly an airport. I'm going to t- it's a quick turn. I'm going to turn around and fly back to uh, Newark, the original point of departure. I'm going to be released 20, uh, 10 minutes after I get back, and then I'm going to go home for 10 hours, and then I'm going to fly... Um, what they call a split duty or a stand-up flight, which is last flight out for the day and then first flight back in the morning with minimum rest. And we, I don't know if Carl wants to get into that or not, but that's that's a whole other sort of ball wax there. But right. uh, but essentially, it's like working it's like working a night shift. So now here I was working the day, the early morning shift, be, getting done with work at like three in the afternoon. And being up at four o'clock in the morning, and I did that again. I flew a turn. I came home. I was. I got back to the airport at uh, like noon, and or I'm sorry, not uh, eleven. And then I had to report back ten hours later. So I report back that night. I'm exhausted. To, I'm walking in the door like a zombie because it's ten o'clock at night, and I have to fly in you know half an hour. And I had been in bed sleeping every other night previously at like eight eight o'clock or eight thirty or something. So I get to the plane. The plane's on maintenance. They tell us it's going to be like two or three hours. It was some. It was a significant issue. So two hours goes by and I'm I'm falling asleep in a chair. Okay. And uh, and then they say, all right, the plane is now ready to go, um, and we need you to fly to this airport, um, drop these people off, reposition the plane to this other airport, and then pick those other people up and fly them back. Then we get to the plane, and then there was a new, ma- a new uh, maintenance issue that was going to delay us another hour. And I just I threw in a flag, and I said, I can't do it. I just, I just can't do it. I, can't st- I couldn't even fathom staying up another hour, let alone flying people for an hour and then flying somewhere else and then flying back you know, at 6 o'clock in the morning. So I called them fatigued. I commend you for doing that. I mean, that's yeah, it's tough to do, isn't it? Well, it was tough to do because I think I was with the company for like three or four months. So here I am, a new employee. Um, I, I, I believe it or not, it's uh, retrospectively you hear the story and you're like, "Geez, that's." I mean, you know, no human being should have to endure that, uh, you know. And who could stay up that long and and be alert and fly an airplane under those conditions? And and 
I look back and I laugh and I say, yeah, I would, I would have called in fatigued every time over that. But in the moment, I agonized over that decision because I was a new employee. Um, and, I, you know, here I am. I'm trying to be... I'm trying to be the best employee I can be. Additionally, you know, we're like like you said, I completely agree with that statement. We're pilots, we're mission-driven people, we're type A people, we want to get the job done. And I had that, you know, get let's get the job done kind of mentality, except I kind of took a step back and said, hold on a second here. I mean, is this the safest course of action? Am I am am I being am I operating the aircraft? Or can I operate the aircraft safely? And it's not a matter of operating the aircraft under normal circumstances, but what happens if we lose the engine on departure? Can I operate the aircraft safely on one engine or if, if there's a fire or smoke or something? And I, didn't, and, the, and I asked myself those questions, and the answer was no. So I called in fatigue. And I'd do it again. That's, and that, like I said, I commend you for that. That's a, that was That's, the right decision. But now, we, you know, this is a great example of, of somebody in an airline that's calling in fatigued. I've called in fatigued once, uh, actually had to call security and get some help going out the door because the passengers were going to kill me. And uh, <laughs> it, it, it was sad because I, I really, I'd been going for 24 hours straight. And, uh, right. you know, I won't tell you the whole story there, but it was basically I was reassigned to something. They said, come back to the airport in nine hours. I said, well, I don't have anywhere to go. So I slept in a chair and got up. I really didn't get much sleep. I said, I can't do this anymore. And uh, after a long day of flying. So so now let's take this, what we just talked about. And this is this is awesome that you're explaining what happened. But as you were talking, this is what I'm thinking in my mind. And let's relate this to general aviation because we, as general aviation pilots, are trying to learn from what the airlines are doing. We don't have some of the tools that the airlines have, meaning FAR 117, which I know is a rule, but it's also a tool. Because right. if we operate within the rules, this is going to keep us safer. But we have all these other things that we can do in general aviation to keep ourselves safe. And and as you're talking, I, I, I in my mind, start thinking about the attorney, the producer, the, the uh, person that does surgery, that wants to fly the next day with their family. All these, it's not just unique to the airlines, is it? It's also part of general aviation. So, so as general aviation pilots, we see the same thing. I mean, as airline pilots, we see that happen. You know, my, my fatigue risk management is a little different because of, of, say, I do a lot of red eyes or, you know, I'm flying six, seven hours straight in one, one instance, and then I come back and I'm fatigued and I can't fly anymore. That's from an airline perspective, right. but there's so many good stories out there from a GA perspective. And you know, I'm wondering if anybody else has a, a good one. Victoria, do you have a good story that you, you might be able to relate to us as far as fatigue and risk management? I do, actually. It was um, during my commercial training, we needed to do some sort of cross-country or something. And I was up until maybe 4 a.m., just couldn't sleep and then ended up working a full day and then went right to the airport afterwards to do this cross country and took off at Pontiac. And the next airport after that is, um, Flint, Michigan. And, um, we were contacting Flint approach and, you know, we just contacted them and they gave us, you know, the, um, altimeter setting and flying along. And all of a sudden they go, uh, whatever my end number was clear to land runway, such and such. And I was like, why is he clearing me to land? Well, little did I know, and my instructor wasn't correcting me because um, he was just wanting to see what was going on, was I was descending so much enough that the uh, control thought I was coming into land. Wow. 
And it was just because I had a lack of sleep and I was just sitting there in this slow descent and didn't realize it quick enough. And Well, in that flight, did you have any tools that you folks use for, for fatigue risk management or risk management for the flight in general? Well, um, the tool we ended up using was turning around and going back because we knew <laughs> there was no way I was going to make it. Right. Um, you know, I just tried to push myself. You know, I didn't want to cancel on the instructor because, of course, you know, they lose out too. But, you know, you could tell when they're clearing you to land when you're intending just to fly over the airport, something's a little off. Well, you know, there are some great tools out there on the FAA website as far as fatigue risk management and things that we can we can ask ourselves and and we can actually fill out a form that that says you know this is this is the risks and uh, is, am I at too high of a risk for the flight that I'm about to do? Sometimes you don't recognize it, do you? Like Victoria, did you recognize you were that tired prior to the flight? I knew I was tired, but I did not realize how tired be before I got, you know. And what, what's that the, the medicine says? Do not operate heavy machinery. <laughs> yeah. I did not notice it until I started operating heavy machinery, just how bad of an idea that was. <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned your instructor. And, you know, your instructors also a lot of times get fatigued. And I'd, I'd love to hear from some of the instructors here. But I, I myself had someone come up to me and say, hey, you know, Carl, you need to kind of cut back on this. You, you know, you, you're doing a little too much flying here. Uh, I was within the regulations as far as the number of hours I could fly in a day. But have you ever recognized that in your instructor, Victoria, that they were too fatigued to go and say, hey, listen, are you okay? <laughs> um, yeah, kind of. I don't know if he was tired or bored, though. But I did I did think it was like a winter day, a little too much pattern work, bored out of his mind. And I think he nodded off until I landed a little hard. <laughs> um, he was like, well, what it. happened there? I was like, well, you don't know. I don't, I don't know. Um, but no, that, that was the only case that I can think of off the top of my head, and I just find it funny. <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting because I, I've had students tell me, hey, listen, are you okay? Are you, you, you awake? I was like, wow, you know, maybe I'm working too many hours. But how about some of the other instructors here? Let's see, Tom and, uh, and or Tom, have you had any instances where you've had a call and say, hey, that's it, I'm not going to fly anymore? And do you have any way of mitigating uh, fatigue where you work? Um, I haven't had any opportunities as of yet, um, but uh, I, I am always aware of it. Um, I check myself regularly, and, and I, ha I ask students as well. You know, um, the FAA provides us uh, the "I'm safe" checklist. Mm -hmm. You know, and one of the things that's in there is fatigue, and you know, among other things. And 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 it's a normal check to go through to make sure that um, I, as an instructor and the um, student, are are ready to uh, fly the mission that we're about to fly that day. Um, you know, I try to look at it for myself because, you know, um, I, I really don't want to put myself into a situation where, um, you know, I'm going to be unsafe in the sky. Um, you know, because as you know, as a flight instructor, I spend most of my day flying with people who don't know how to fly, you know, so it, it behooves me to uh, make sure that I'm as sharp as I can possibly be. Um, that said, you know, um, once we start getting busy at times, it's, it's, it is hard to recognize because it's, um, it's easy just to have another cup of coffee and push yourself through the day and say, okay, I got to get this done. I got to get this done. And then you realize in hindsight, wow, I was, I was getting pretty tired there. And, um, I have, I've gotten that situation once or twice, but it's, it's not been, uh, overwhelming. So would you agree, Tom, that maybe we should start looking towards the possibility of, of instituting some fatigue risk management training in, in all these different environments? I know obviously the airlines do it and uh, even in the flight schools. Do you think that's a good idea? 
Um, I do, but I don't. I, I can't wrap my head around how that's going to be done um, because fatigue is such a individual thing, if you will. Mm-hmm. It's almost like they do um, high altitude training so that they, uh, you know, give you an oxygen deprivation so that you can start experiencing hypoxia because it's so different in individuals. And and I'm wondering if fatigue is kind of the same way. Now, there's basic studies that have gone through, and and you know, even the NTSB sites that you know a, a normal adult should have seven to nine hours of sleep. To keep from uh, being uh, tired, um, you know, does that really work for everybody? I mean, didn't they say Einstein only slept four hours a night? But right. Of course, you know, he was in a laboratory. He wasn't yeah, flying an he aircraft. He wasn't flying a plane. He was blowing yeah. up things in a lab. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, but but that, but that's that, that's kind of what I'm where I'm going with this is is it different for individuals and how do you put a blanket statement out there that's going to cover every individual as far as what quote unquote fatigued is. Well, I think one of the things that we can do is uh, start attending more seminars, safety seminars, et cetera, and, and ask your, your instructor, your, the owner of your school, and also your flight department, hey, can we put in some training for fatigue risk management, but also the recognition of fatigue and understanding the different types of sleep and, and you know, what type of sleep, what sleep deprivation will do for me and how much of a risk it is. So I think, too, if we understand the problem, we also understand how to recognize it. It's kind of like you just said. With with you know high altitude chambers, understanding what's happening, I think that will help quite a bit. So I think that's one of the solutions I've I've come up with it that I feel that is is really good is that get out there, do the training, and try to recognize it. Have a checklist, do as much as you can. Is any system perfect? No, it's very individual. Uh, like you said, there's certain people that that have different modes of operation, and they they have different ways of of fatigue affecting their body. So that that's really really important going forward is to have classes and start getting some more fatigue recognition training. There's a lot of different things, like you said, the NTSB has come up with. And it's not just getting the sleep. You know, it's it's understanding concepts that we may not have heard of, like sleep sleep inertia. You know, what is sleep inertia? And if you don't know what that is, I, you know, challenge you to go out and find out and, and start reading about that out there. Um, Paul, I know you, you also ha- were an instructor. Um, have you had any experience as far as fatigue uh, in, in the instructing environment or, or were you at one of those people that, that never got tired? No, I live in a constant state of tiredness. <laughs> I so imagine. I have a lot of experience. No, um, actually, I agree with what with Tom said I want, before I bring up a, another point i just wanted to say it's true you know people everybody experiences different i'll call them symptoms of fatigue and i think one of the biggest things that we can do as pilots period i don't mean airline pilots but general aviation airline whatever is to be aware and i think bringing awareness to this issue is one of the most important things that we can do and you know when you're sitting around and it's a crummy day out and you can't go fly and you're talking you know you're just hangar flying with some buddies you know maybe bring it up and and talk about it and and just start a conversation because i think that um you know people it, it can be kind of an, it can have sort of this insidious onset where you're you're not really sure um you think you're tired and you but you think you could do it until you get in the plane kind of like what victoria was saying earlier and um, and then you realize, oh man, I'm really, I'm really beat. I really, I shouldn't be doing this. So awareness, I think, to, is is something that's incredibly important in, on this topic because it's probably it's probably one of the most dangerous things that uh, that we face because it occurs every day. And flying or doing operating anything when you're when you have a, an incredible level of fatigue, 
I don't want to go too much into it, but it can be as dangerous as, as operating intoxicated, uh, uh, you know, having a alcohol impairment. So it's, it's critically important. But um, another point I wanted to make from the general aviation instructor side, and this didn't happen with me. I was not the instructor, but my, one of my closest friends who's actually doing his commercial check ride tomorrow in Florida um, was scared out of flying for years because of an instructor who fell asleep on him on his very first lesson flying. So he went up, um, he went up with an instructor in New Jersey uh, where he, he, I finally had convinced him to do flight training. He goes up for his very first introductory flight and he's flying over Western New Jersey and he looks over and this, you know, mid, mid to late 70 year old instructor is passed out of sleep and he's hunched over his seatbelt. I mean, out cold. So he, my friend, panicked, but he thought he's like, I wonder if he's, I wonder if he died. <laughs> he's uh-huh. out. He was out for the count. Out for the count. You know, just and um, or so, and kind of like was giving him a little nudge, and he wouldn't wake up, and then he's starting to get a little panicky, and finally he wakes up, and he's like, oh, oh sorry, uh, let's head back to the airport. And uh, so he, he goes back to the airport, and he didn't fly again for like three or four years. Wow. And he's just now, last uh, two years ago, he just finally went, I finally convinced him to go back, and... Uh, so he got his private and he got his instrument. Now he's working on his commercial, but he's doing a great job. But it scared him out of flying for years. So it's you know, as instructors, we have a really important job to uh, make people comfortable because that's one of the laws of learning, right? Is uh, you, you don't want you pe- students don't learn if they're not um, uh, fit you know, in a, in a situation where they can be fit to learn. And there's comfort and and all these other high, whole hierarchy of things that needs to be met. And um, safety comfort is is up there and he did not feel he was he was not having that need met and it scared him out of flying so we almost lost a pilot because an instructor was too too fatigued to stay awake on an introductory flight and fortunately i was able to convince him to go back to it but i think that's an incredibly powerful um problem you know Mm -hmm. sure and uh so yeah well, and and along with that story, I mean, it's the fatigue is a problem too. But you know, fatigue is also part of being medically fit for duty, uh, and and all the other things that go along with. It. As a matter of fact, that's the other thing on the the uh, one of the NTSB's uh, top uh, you know list right here as far as uh, most wanted is required medical fitness for duty. Are we fit for duty? Are we medically? fit for duty uh are we is the fatigue is it caused by a medical condition possibly so that's the other part of it if we you know moving on to the next part or one of the other parts of this is are we medically fit for duty was the fatigue caused by the possibility of having maybe sleep apnea not being able to get sleep at night or something else where there's that is something that's really important that we have the ability to understand are we are we not just not unfatigued are we are we fit for duty excuse me but are we also do we have any other issues in our medical background that might prevent us from actually flying today and uh, one of those things it could be maybe you have a, a color deficiency 
that you didn't know about and you, you need to find out if you, you can actually fly. It's usually caught within your medical exam. Yes, I understand that. But, uh, but it, you know, that one flight that they had in Tallahassee that, that crashed, it was one of the pilots had a severe color deficiency, uh, which they said was part of the contributing factors uh, towards correctly identifying the, the PAPI lights and warning that the flight was too low. And how, is that, that's a condition for flight that we have to have. Are we taking medications, that type of thing? So that, that's also, you know, Tom brought that up, the I am safe che- uh, checklist. You know, are, are you taking any medications? Do you have any deficiency? Can you pass? And this is what I always tell people. When you're coming to a, to a flight and you're moving into the, the aircraft, are you able to pass your medical your FA medical right now, and if you don't think you can or there's something that's inhibiting you from that, then you shouldn't be flying. Unfortunately, there's times when you don't recognize that, and, uh, and that's, just, that's, that's part of that whole risk of flying. It's, it's, and just in life in general, we don't, we don't always know uh, if we are uh, fit to fly because we don't recognize some of those symptoms, and that's why I think it's important that we do that. Um, and that's, that's what the other part of that list is, you know, are we, are we actually fit to fly medically? And that's something that, you know, we, can all, we all can agree on that, and we, we all can real, try to realize that we are fit for flight, but we can do that through some of the tools that are, that are actually out there. Uh, so that, that's one of the ones from the list. That's kind of a, a short topic there. But one of the other ones that I think is really interesting on this NTSB Most Wanted list is, uh, you know, trying to – they talk about disconnecting from deadly distractions. And I think, Tom, you, you actually, I think, had an, an interesting story I think you were going to say about disconnecting from deadly distractions in the cockpit especially uh, and in your flight. Have you experienced anything in your, in your flight instructing, in your flying world, where you were very distracted in the cockpit? Um, no, not specifically. But, I, you know, I, I, I saw this and took interest in it just because, you know, I like all the whiz-bang uh, gadgets that we have coming out. And, and, you know, I like playing with those things and seeing how we can apply them in the cockpit. And, uh, you know, there's some really cool stuff out there. Um, I did most of my flight training in a, in a Garmin G1000. So, I mean, just learning that thing was overwhelming and, and applying it to, um, to aviation, you know. So with all the technical advances that are out there that you can get in the cockpit and have them hardwired in and even that you can carry in your pocket and bring into uh in the in the cockpit with you um you know really it, it you can make these things work for you but you have to work them you know and and the picture that they have here with this guy holding a phone and his thumb on it and you know where what are you doing you're looking at your thumb you know and and as you're punching away on stuff on the, on a little tiny screen um trying to make it work for you and you know other things are going on outside um and and it's real easy to lose that and and i found that today um I did some sim- simulator time today, and it was uh, just a 172 and a Redbird full motion. But it, it was, you know, um, distracting just even to do things and try to keep the plane, um, you know, heading in the direction and at the altitude that you wanted to. You know, in IMC conditions, they were simulated, but it, it, it's very easy to get distracted. And I can see where these devices that we have add to that, you know, and and where the concern is coming from. But the device many times is is helping us with our flight or is a tool that's assisting us in our flight. So, you know, we're looking at this device well, and we're, it's, we have to manage that device, don't we? Well let, well, let me ask you this. Where'd you learn how to use that device and, and that it was going to work properly? Did right. you do it on the it, ground? It, most of the, most of the apps that I have don't work until you actually get them up in the air and get them going. Right. You know, um, four flights like that, I mean, pilots like that, you know, um, well, most of the features in it don't work until you're actually off the ground. I'm, so, I'm glad you brought that up. 
And uh, it, it, one of the things that I – we, when they first came out with these GPSs and doing GPS approaches, you know, I, I knew the helicopter pilots locally were saying, hey, someone's going to get hurt because they're, everybody's heads down in the cockpit trying to learn how to use this GPS because there's really uh, no other way to learn that except in the aircraft. Now they have a lot more simulators. But, uh, but boy, I think, I think you make a good point there, Tom, is that, yeah, are we learning this – in the cockpit, or are we learning this on a simulator? We try as much as we can to learn it in a simulator, and there's so many great devices out there. But uh, that will do training on these on these different PEDs, electronic devices, etc. But you still, a lot of times, it doesn't work properly, like you said, until you actually get into the into oh, the yeah, cockpit. Oh yeah, it's not it's not all about um, you know learned, uh, flying the plane as well. You know, how about taking videos? I've put a GoPro in a cap in a, in a airplane before so that I could watch myself later and analyze my maneuvers as I was working on my commercial. So now you have an app that lets you use the GoPro so that you can turn it on when it's in the plane. Again, it's another distraction. Interesting. Now, Interesting. So and, and and that had nothing to do with the with the completion of the mission. Right. You know, it was it was a it was for a training issue. Um I at the time that I did that, I did learn how to use that on the ground. And it was already on and I didn't have to do it while it was flying. But I could see that happening. It's another app that's on a phone that's on a separate device that, that you could be using um, while you were flying. Hmm. Interesting. Cool. Hey, uh, Tom, this is Larry. Um, just a, a couple of quick thoughts there from, from some of your comments. Um, I have, like many of us do, I think, have a flight simulator set up uh, on a table in my basement, um, and I use X-Plane. But uh, there are a couple things there that I've found to be really helpful. One is uh, some software from a place called flythissim.com, and they're always at Sun and Fun and Oshkosh. You can see their booth. Um, but they have a really nice uh, Garmin uh, G1000 simulator and some other avionics as well um, that's much more realistic than anything else that I've used. Um, and also, um, you can uh, send the uh, location information from X-Plane, and I think from Flight Sim too, but from X-Plane you can send the location information to uh, ForeFlight, so it actually works just like it does in the cockpit. Of course, none of that's loggable. Um, but if it's just a, an exercise of trying to learn how the you know ForeFlight software works, or learn a little bit more about a, a G1000, um, it can be really helpful. Interesting. So it, you know, even though we have all those tools, a lot of times we don't use them until we actually jump in the airplane. You know, uh, but that, that's very cool. I think that's that's an awesome thing, and everything everybody should try to do that. But you know, distractions uh, can be found by just using your cell phone. And, you know, a lot of people think with the airlines, we're not allowed to use cell phones, right, when we're flying. Uh, that's not true, actually. And I know this is going to become as a shocker, but we can actually make phone calls uh, on the cell phone, but only in certain specific instances. And I'm sure Paul can comment on this. But if I need to make a phone call, say I'm taxiing around and something breaks, you know, we have procedures in place. And this is kind of the point I'm trying to make. We have procedures in place that tell us, okay, we're about to use this device and we're going to set the parking brake, and then we can use the phone to call maintenance and find out, hey, we, you know, how do we fix this problem we have or get a new clearance or, or get a new release. We can actually do that with a parking brake set. Just like certain other devices, we're actually allowed to get on the Internet too, but we can only do it in non-mission critical environment, and we can only get on the Internet and look at things that are specific to the operation of that flight. Paul, do you have that type of, of uh, rules in place at where you work? 
Yeah, um, not the, not the internet part, right. but uh, <laughs> but definitely the cell. <laughs> no no Wi-Fi capability on the dash, no. but uh, definitely definitely the cell phone. And uh, because it's a dash, we use that cell phone quite often. But uh, the parking brake's got to be set, and uh, yeah, so same same exact rule, and uh, and we do use it quite a bit. So I think Larry's point was really good, though, as far as uh, you know, getting in there and getting some training in the devices being used. But you also, I think it's important to learn when to and when to not use those devices. That's extremely important. I think that's what the NTVSB is trying to tell us here. Um, moving on to, uh, let's see, the uh, other equipment. Now, I think, Paul, you had one more comment on that one before we move on. I was just going to mention, you know, if you're flying with new equipment, uh, like say you're, you know, you're trying out for flight for the first time. Um, it it's, might be a good idea to just have a safety pilot with you. So let a guy go up and just uh, keep his heads up, and he's he's looking for traffic, and and he maybe he's even flying the airplane if you don't have an autopilot capable airplane, and um, so that you can be heads down, and you can be learning your equipment if it's something that you absolutely can't simulate on the ground. Which I I know a lot of things are are, are you're able to simulate on the ground and you're able to learn on the ground, but. If there's things that you really want to get some experience with in the air, having a safety pilot up there with you um, is, I think, a, a really solid way to go. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's a great, great advice. Get up, get up with somebody. I know it might be a little more expensive. It might be free if it's with a friend. You know, just make sure that you brief them and make sure somebody's always flying and always looking outside. I think that's very, very important. Uh, we only have time for just one more of these uh, on the on the most wanted list with the NTSB, and that's preventing loss of control in flight and general aviation. And uh, some of the big takeaways, as a summary, uh, they're looking at the possibility. Of, of moving towards uh, more hardware in the aircraft that can actually recognize our angle of attack. I know that some of us fly aircraft that have an angle of attack indicator, uh, and I know some people say, well, you know, my airspeed's somewhat an indirect, uh, uh, you know, angle of attack indicator. But you know what? A, a plane can stall, you know, any attitude, any airspeed. And uh, we need to recognize that. And we have to know, you know, what it is our aircraft's going to do at different uh, flight regimes and different parts of the flight envelope. Uh, so they're talking about loss of control, uh, and one of the things, one of the tools that will prevent loss of control is the angle of attack indicator. And the reason being is that it prevents the aircraft from doing what, from stalling, right? And I think it's a really cool device, and I'd like to see more of them put into aircraft. And uh, the solution is moving forward, which I think is exciting, and uh, and we do talk about it quite a bit in our in different forums and in different uh, safety programs, but. Uh, angle of attack indi- indicators are all different. I mean, I've had you know four or five different airplanes I've flown uh, with angle of attack indicators, and they all all looked a little different. And uh, you know, you have to understand with your specific aircraft and with the equipment you're using how to understand what it's telling you uh, as far as the angle of attack is concerned. Because you know, when we're doing stalls, we're doing what? We're exceeding the the critical angle of attack, and this is the indication of that angle of attack. And uh, it actually is really cool. Some people call it a fast, slow indicator. Some really, really neat stuff. I'm wondering, does has anybody else had experience? Uh, I've had only one aircraft, general aviation, that I've ever flown with an angle of attack indicator. Has anybody else flown with an angle of attack indicator? Just curious. In a general aviation aircraft, that is. Crickets? No, I guess not. So they're not, yeah. not as prevalent. And uh, I know people I, that have them. I got to play with it. 
Hey, Carl, this is Tom. I haven't had it, actually seen it in an aircraft, but I will agree with you about them all being different. Um, having gone to a few of the air shows here the past couple of years, um, lots of vendors out there selling them for general aviation aircraft. And, and like you said, they're all different. Some of them have needles that point to different colors. Some of them have lighting fixtures that, that light up different colors. Um, and and uh, they can put them kind of in a heads-up kind of display. Um, there's all sorts of really, uh, I guess, neat stuff that they're doing with them, but uh, I don't think anybody's standardized them yet. And mm -hmm. and that's what I would think is as this moves forward, you know, um, it'd be cool if it was a standardized uh, piece of equipment. Gosh, I hope that happens. But it's like a lot of other things in the in the airplanes. They they somewhat are standard, but they're not quite all the same. And I, I know I hope they do come together more. But they they do need somewhat of some standardization. Uh, all the different uh, jets that I've flown, uh, they're all different as far as their angle of attack indicators. Uh, it's it's quite interesting. Uh, some don't even have any. So it's uh, it's interesting to see. You know what what's going to come about with this. You know, and also with this other. You know, this will be our last topic here until we move on to picks of the week. But uh, the preventing the loss of control in flight and general aviation. They 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 do stress the whole angle of attack, and they talk a lot about that. They also talk a lot about other things. You know, different stall characteristics in in loading of your aircraft with an AFCG. Uh, you know, also. Uh, taking advantage of type clubs and, and understanding and you know your aircraft and getting some currency in the type of aircraft you're training. You're in a twin. Have you been out there? Have you done you know a bunch of single engine approaches, engine out procedures, that type of thing? And they also talk about managing distractions in your flying. So those are some other big takeaways. But but just to, you know the point I wanted to make is they really are focusing a little bit more on this angle of attack indicator. I'm really excited to see more of the the indicators come out and uh, and to see how this actually evolves. And and I've you know I've seen some of the devices. I think they're really cool. And even some of the portable devices are super, super duper cool. So, uh, so that'll be that'll be really interesting to see how that evolves. Well, guys, you know, I we actually are uh, coming up on on the uh, the hour mark here with our show, and I know there was uh, we had another listener mail that came through. Uh, so I was wondering if we could get to that real quickly. I had uh, remember uh, we talked a little bit about uh, cold weather. We talked about cold weather flying uh, in the in the last show. And uh, during that show, we talked about the initial approach segment and the intermediate uh, approach segment, and we also talked about the other segments. But specifically, uh, we had someone that uh, sent us a message on the Facebook and asked us to discuss, you know, what is what exactly is an initial approach segment, and what's an intermediate approach segment, that type of thing. Uh, but uh, you know, just a, a quick review, you know, the the initial approach segment, of course, and the purpose of that. Uh, initial approach segment is to provide you know some method of aligning the aircraft with the intermediate or final approach segment and to permit a descent during that alignment okay while you're being aligned for that either the intermediate or the final approach segment uh, and that intermediate segment of course is designed to primarily the primary uh, driver of the intermediate approach uh, segment and the reason for it is to uh, position the aircraft for the final descent to the airport. Okay, so that's that's part of that segment. You know, another thing that was mentioned is uh, what about feeder routes? Well, you know, feeder routes are depicted on instrument approach procedures, uh, and they're they're designate routes uh, for the aircraft to proceed from the enroute structure to the initial approach fix. But uh, feeder feeder routes uh, also are referred to as, of course, approach transitions. They technically 
are not considered approach segments, but are a very integral part of uh, of the instrument approach procedure. So, so that's very important there. And of course, before I, I move on, I did want to mention the final approach segment because I know we're going to get that question asked too. And uh, you know, the final approach segment for that approach uh, with any type of vertical guidance or precision, appro- precision approach begins where the glide slope or the glide path intercepts the minimum glide slope, glide path intercept altitude shown on that approach chart. So let's say if AITC authorized a lower intercept altitude, the final approach begins upon glide slope or glide path intercept at that altitude. So for instance, if it's 3,000 feet you know, and that's below the altitude, the final approach segment altitude, your final approach will begin at that glide slope intercept. Say they tell you to go to 2,000 feet. Uh, and you know for, for non-precision approach, the final approach segment begins either at the designated final approach fix, uh, which is usually depicted as a cross uh, on the profile view, uh, or at the point where the aircraft is established inbound on the final approach course. Um, when the final approach fix isn't designated, uh, you know, s- such as uh, an approach that has a VOR and NDB, uh, this point is typically where the procedure turn intersects with the final approach course inbound. And, uh, and also, this is uh, usually referred to as a final approach point, FAP. And the final approach segment ends, as, as we might expect, at either at the designated missed approach point or, obviously, upon landing. So I hope that was a little bit of help for the people that were asking those different segments. I know that was a, a quick, quick overview, but I wanted to talk about that a little bit. We'll have some links to uh, where those terms are and where you can really get in-depth on that information. We'll also have links at Stuck Mike Avcast episode 113 as far as the different things we talked about, the NTSB and also about recognizing and managing fatigue. Our picks of the week. So, on to the next segment of, uh, and the really a fun segment, and I love some of the things that we've come up with here, and that is our picks of the week. And the picks of the week, I think we're going to start off with is uh, Sean. Sean Moody, what is your pick of the week today? Uh, mine this time is a website called airporttag.com. It's like, I'm not sure how they split this up, but it's Airport AG. Um, and you can get all kinds of uh, things like pillows or, or T-shirts or curtains, and it's all made up of airport codes. And oh, cool. they've, they keep adding more and more air- airports. Um, and it's, it's really cool. They also keep adding more and more types of items you can get with whatever airport is near you on them. Everything uh, um, they've got uh, – they also have travel quotes and, and quotes about airports and airlines. It's a really, really neat website. I just came across it. It was a sponsored post on Facebook one day, and uh, I've never really been into much home decor. But if it's got airport codes on it, I'm all about it. That's pretty cool. You know, it's funny. I pulled up the, air, the airport tag website and says, hey, you can get a, make a Valentine's gift. And uh, you know what? I'm not so sure my, my wife would really appreciate this as a gift, to be honest <laughs> yeah, with you. Yeah, same here. Yeah, so I, I think maybe I, I should. I you would. Know, of course, Victoria would. And she and, and remember, I hope he's listening now that this might be something <laughs> to look at. <laughs> Victoria, while we have you, what is your pick of the week? Um, mine is the Garmin 796. It's the uh, Garmin's portable uh, touchscreen GPS and um, our, my boss recently installed it on our company 172. It's actually just like part of the panel now. And it's pretty handy. It's got a bunch of little tabs at the bottom for uh, weather. You can pull up approach plates, um, all that fun stuff. It's got a nice direct to button, a nearest button. Those are always handy. And apparently it's got some like virtual 3D stuff going on too, which I haven't been able to 
play with yet because they've always been in the air when I've used it. So um, a lot of fun stuff, uh, good for uh, terrain avoidance and, uh, you know, going paperless. How's that? Does the touchscreen work well? I, I haven't touched that one yet. I was so worried about, you know, turbulence and like right. having trouble touching things. But so far it's been fine, but I haven't been able to get too in-depth with it. But it, uh, it, it looks great on the panel and it's... Uh, a good extra thing to have in the cockpit with you. Cool. Yeah, it looks awesome. I mean, the vi- the visual on it looks great. The pictures they have, I'm assuming in the cockpit, it looks good too. Yes, it does. Awesome. So the Garmin 796. Well, thanks for that. Uh, we'll go on to Larry. What is your pick of the week? Yeah, so we, um, in our intros today, we were talking about uh, a little bit how cold the weather was up here in Wisconsin. And uh, last episode, of course, was all about cold weather flying. And so it got me thinking um, that uh, Sun and Fun is just around the corner. It's uh, April 5th through 10th in Lakeland, Florida. Um, it's not too early to start planning your trip down there. Uh, a lot of fun friends to see. Uh, probably several of us will be there, and we'd love to, to <laughs> see anybody that uh, can make it. Um, Sun-N-Fun.org. Uh, and you can learn all about it there. And also, uh, thanks to our friend Dave Pasco from LiveATC.net, you can listen to recordings of Sun and Fun radio interviews and so forth from previous years at LiveATC.net slash SNF. LiveATC.net slash SNF. Really cool. You get to hear a lot of interviews by Larry and yours truly. Uh, Sun and Fun's uh, my, it's like Mecca for me. I love Sun and Fun and, and the people there. So definitely go check that out. Sun N Fun.org. .org. Okay, there I'm it is. getting Thanks. warmer just thinking about it. Yes, I am too. Gosh, and I'm up here in the Arctic Tundra too. So I, I can't wait to head down south to Sun and Fun. Well, uh, the other person that I think could use a nice little break from the cold north, and that's up in the Boston area, <laughs> is Rick Felty. Rick, what is your pick of the week? Yeah, it's it's pretty normal for for winter, so we're we're fine up here so far. Um, my pick of the week is a, a website called LearnTailwheel.com. And uh, it's a website of a, a friend of mine who's also a friend of the show, Paul Santo Pietro. He's a he's a tailwheel CFI, um, and I just helped him put this website together as a as a, a point of a detail that I should point out. Um, and uh, he um, he actually was on a Stuck My Cavcast uh, episode number thirty two A, one of our. Uh, shorter episodes we did in between episodes. Uh, I recorded that flying with him up here. And um, he flies, uh, he teaches up here on Martha's Vineyard uh, tailwheel stuff in the uh, summer and then down in the uh, Daytona Beach area, uh, right, you know, this time of year in, uh, you know, in the in the winter. So uh, if you have time and you're interested, check out uh, learntailwheel.com. And you know it's a fine looking website. That is Thank a you. really cool looking website. Very, and it's easy to navigate. Got some great pictures, and I, I love. He just looks like a happy guy. He's a he's one of those like guys you just who who feels like he's been doing it forever. Was meant to do it, you know. Kind of the just uh, you know connected to the plane, you know, and just a and he's got great stories, you know. One of those guys, and he awesome. and he's he's fun to fly with. So I would recommend if you're interested and. Uh, you can take a winter trip down there and get some time in or uh, or time it out in the summer because both places he flies are pretty beautiful places to, to be in the air. So Cool, cool. And, you yeah. know, it's – and I love the photos on there. As a matter of fact, that kind of ties into my, my pick of the week. It's, uh, it's actually – you know, flying aviators. You know why we why they fly, and it's an old book. You can find it on Amazon. And when I was looking at your website, and I said to myself, "Gosh, this is really cool." It's like why flyers fly. And if you look at at what he has on his website there with learntailwheel.com, 
it's uh, it that's why we fly. It's just because of the big smiles that we get and the cool places we we uh, we see. But this book I'm talking about, uh, Flyers and Why We Fly, has some amazing photos in there. It's too bad it's out of print, but you can find it at a used bookstore. We'll have a link. Uh, you can find it on Amazon. I'm sure there's other places you can. That's the only place I know where I, that's where I usually search. Uh, there's others, I'm sure, for used books, uh, and some aviation bookstores will have that. But it's just a it's a beautiful cocktail table book. I'll never get rid of it. As a matter of fact, I just looked at it and I always kind of put a date when I finally read a book. And it was uh, 1996 is the last time I read the book, so I've had it for for quite a few years. It's very inspirational and. Uh, it also has Buck, Buck actually has some, uh, or Richard Bach has some stuff in there. Uh, Rinker Buck, I think, had something in there. Some really great quotes in that. Um, so that's my pick of the week. And uh, next is Tom Frick. Tom, what is your pick of the week? Yeah, I keep up with my weather theme, as I promised a few episodes back. <laughs> and and one, of, one of the things that I came up with was um, uh, something that I use and I'm still learning about. So I'm not professing any kind of proficiency with this. But the website is called rucksoundings.noaa.gov. And basically what it is is a presentation of um, a SKU-T log P chart. And basically what I use this for is to find um, – where the temperature and dew point are going to converge so that I can determine cloud bases and cloud heights when I'm uh, flight planning. Um, and it's, it's something that I'm just kind of dabbling in right now. Um, I found some cool information just searching YouTube and, and playing around with, uh, you know, I just, I really, I just Googled into YouTube uh, SKU-T log P and came up with uh, several different videos that started explaining some of this stuff. And it's presented here on this rucksoundings.noaa.gov. And um, when that page comes up, there's a place uh, on the bottom under names, and you can put in an airport name in there, and it'll show you. And basically what it's giving you is the soundings from a weather balloon as it goes up through the atmosphere and where the temperature and dew point converge. And it gives you um, a presentation also of wind directions. So like I said, it's a you can, you can put in different places along your route of uh, flight and, and uh, pick up information, and it just kind of helps you out a little bit when you're, when, um, when you're trying to uh, flight plan and, and where the clouds are going to be that particular day. And what's really cool is you, there's a lot of uh, different things on that website where you can actually learn uh, about the ruck sounding and also uh, how to use it. And uh, I think Texas A&M has a, has a real cool little uh, website you can go, go to in, in the meteorological department. You can take little quizzes. That's pretty awesome. They do. And you know what? Some of this stuff is, you know, some of this information is so technically advanced and there's really some weather geeks out there that probably absorb this stuff quicker than, um, you know, a, a simple little flight instructor can. Like I said, I was trying to use some of this to apply it to aviation and, um, you know, I'm still learning. Yes, aren't we all? And that, that looks really, really cool. I was just looking through that. It's an awesome website. Well, thanks for that, Tom. And uh, and also, a special thanks as we wrap up tonight to uh, Paul Greco. Paul, thanks for coming here and giving us your perspective on uh, the regional airline flying, especially on the fatigue management. That was that was quite interesting. Thank, thanks so much for being here, Paul. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks. It was, it was a lot of fun. I'm glad to, glad to come in and talk. It was a good, good conversation. 
well, now you need to get some rest because I know you got to get up early in the morning. You know, we, yeah. we, we want to prevent that fatigue. So we want we don't want to be in, in the impediment to your rest this evening. Make sure you get your eight oh, hours of rest. Oh, it's too late for that. Oh, boy. Don't no, say that. I might, as well just, I might as well just stay up and okay. have fun with the, with the conversation. The after landing checklist. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, unfortunately, we have to end this. And and by the way, just as a reminder, in all these episodes, we, we talk about uh, different topics and we try to teach you things. We, we do bring certain topics to fruition when we do uh, bring certain things to the forefront. And uh, a lot of times it's just introductory. What we're trying to do is we're trying to get you to go out, grab your instructor and talk more about these. And it's not meant to be a thorough discussion of anything. What we want to do is we want to inspire you to get out and learn something else and learn something more about flying and uh, and, and start another conversation and, and, and actually make yourself a safer pilot by learning something. And I hope we've done that. Well, from myself and uh, from Paul Greco, our special guest, and uh, Rick Felty, uh, Larry Overstreet, Sean Moody, Tom Frick, and, of course, Victoria, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next episode. Fly safe. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.